0: Now, Anthony, you're the Director of Ministry Development That's right. for African Enterprise. That's right. Great. And uh, we have hear that you're married, so you're away from your family today.
1: That's right, I am.
0: you got two kids.
1: Yes, I do. A 14-year-old and 11-year-old.
0: Great. And yeah. in the picture that we saw about you, we handed out a flyer here, but there was beach in the background was that yep. significant at all you like the beach oh uh,
1: yeah we live by the ocean and we are definitely an, uh, a family that loves the water and uh, that was a photo you have is this a particularly special night uh, for us as a family celebrating my wife's 40th birthday so great
0: yeah. great now Anthony um, we also know you come from Gaimia Baptist which yep. is a, a, a church that we a lot of us have heard about okay. and you've been on the Team there before, and you moved there to go to African Enterprise?
1: That's correct, yes. I started, which is significant uh, to hear this morning, your journey uh, with the mustard seed ministry. I started in 1995 a counselling ministry out of that church and ran that for 10 years. Wow. Mm. So,
0: do you see a bit of a link between caring for people? Uh, Yeah,
1: absolutely. I love a church that's taking interest in its local community, but also has eyes and hearts big enough to look at the international community as well.
0: Great. mm. Now, Anthony, when you look at now what you're doing with African Enterprise, what would be the thing that you love the most about what you do right now?
1: Probably the thing that I guess for me is the greatest privilege is to see other people enabled into ministry, to see them fulfil their dreams. Many people, most people have dreams and aspirations and uh, they want the opportunity to be able to see those um, lived out And my role, uh, certainly in leadership at at, uh, Guamia Baptist Church, was about facilitating people's dreams in mission. And now uh, having that privilege to to facilitate dreams and visions of Africans reaching their own people, and that, I can't tell you, is just an incredible honour for me to have.
0: Great. Yeah, it's a busy day for you. Uh, you're speaking this morning yep. and then you're speaking at tonight's service as well. Yep. And we've asked you to meet just with a, a small group, the, the deacons and the staff and the pastoral team and the mission watch team and their spouses for lunch. And you're yep. going to speak to us there about, uh, you know, the interaction between the local ministry and global ministry and how... Yep. Whereas leaders can wrestle with that and then at four o'clock you're uh taking there's another session that's coming as well and that's on uh, just all about short-term mission is yep. that right as yeah. well and yeah
1: i lead the short-term missions for african enterprise and uh have been involved in preparing short-term missions for churches and so it's an opportunity for people to just come and hear about what short-term mission can mean for your life and how you can become involved and hopefully ask lots of questions
0: yeah so come to that even if you're just a little bit interested that would be fantastic hey anthony that you would come to our church and spend the whole day we're just so appreciative so we're looking forward to hearing from you and uh thanks for coming you're welcome great okay thank you
1: well again let me say good morning and that's uh it is an absolute privilege to be with you uh it's extraordinary because uh, for myself, the calling I guess that was on my life was not necessarily to be a, a leader in the church, but rather the calling I felt that was on my life was to be among the believers and to be an encourager. And so this morning I come to you, and I don't pretend to come to you as some great orator or some great leader in the church, but hopefully someone who is just trying to live out my life faithfully uh, before God made lots of mistakes in my life, as I'm sure many of you have, and yet I come and I just want to humbly bring some thoughts to you. I think they're strong thoughts. I I trust that you receive them in the love that I share them in, in my heart for the church, my heart to see the church across Australia come alive to the community that surrounds them, but also my heart to see the Church of Australia come alive to its capacity to make a difference in the world across the world. Australia is a generous country, it's a nation that is built on generosity I believe and the church has such a wonderful opportunity to be so much more for the world that surrounds us and in that sense become a shining light and I'll talk about that in a moment. This morning I'm going to speak on this notion of awake is the new sleep. Uh, Margaret had asked me and Jonathan had asked me to um, advise them what passage I was going to speak on and I said Luke 13 and of course I'm not uh, Isaiah 42 is where we're going to go so uh, hang on for the ride tonight I'll have a look at Luke 13 when we have a look at the notion of revolutionary missionaries uh, but this morning we're going to have a look at this concept of awake is the new sleep and I want to start, I want to launch out of Isaiah 42 A less well-known passage, yet you'll hear familiar tones come through it, and we'll talk about those this morning. Let me read to you from verse 1 of Isaiah 42. Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him and he will bring justice to the nations. He will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets, but a bruised reed he will not break and a smouldering wick he will not snuff out. In faithfulness, he will bring forth justice. He will not falter or be discouraged till he establishes justice on the earth. In his law, the islands will put put their hope. This is what God the Lord says. He who created heavens and stretched them out. He who spread out the earth and all that comes out of it. He who gives breath to its people and life to those who walk on it. I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness and I will take hold of your hand. I will keep you and I will make you to be a covenant for the people and a light for the Gentiles, to open the eyes of the blind, to free the captives from prison and to release from the dungeon those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord, that is my name, and I will not give my glory to another or my praise to idols. See the former things that have taken place, And new things, I declare, before they spring into being, I announce them to you. Powerful imagery of this kingdom that is coming. Excitement and anticipation that's going to pour out of the heart of God, out of the very identity of God is coming forth, it's coming at us. What a time it must have been for Isaiah to live in, to to anticipate, to be the prophet that claims, that foretells of what is coming. This kingdom that is coming. And we know that kingdom because we are the followers of Jesus. We are believers in Jesus. Is the expectation and is the experience of the kingdom of God in our world that which matches that verse? Do we experience what we hear Isaiah foretelling is coming toward us? Do we know that today in our own lives? Do we know it in the lives of our community of Wodonga and Albury? Do we know it in the far lands of Africa and Asia and and northern Europe? Sadly, I don't think we do. I think often our experience is not that which was promised to us. And is that about our own lack of faith? Is it about the kingdom of God not advancing the way it was supposed to? I don't believe it is. I believe that all is happening. What I don't see happening is... Christians embracing the full essence of who we can be in Christ. Christians enabled, being enabled by the Holy Spirit and releasing all that they have in their life, not just 10%, to the servitude of God. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning. Why is that? Why are we struggling? Because the kingdom of God is at work. The kingdom of God is at work even when Christians aren't at work. We're seeing many come to know Christ and yet they have not been proselytised in any way or heard the gospel, yet they're coming to know Christ through the most miraculous ways. And the land and continent of Africa is a place that you can look at and you'll see it happen often enough. The kingdom of God is forcefully advancing, folks, and we need to join with it and be a part of it. So what is the problem? What is the problem that we have? I think, sadly... One of the problems that we have is that we have a global awareness. We're aware of what's going on in the world. We watch our news programs, we watch our SBS documentaries and we hear about all that's going on around the world and it's tragic, it's frightening, it's scary. Instead of having global awareness, we need to have a kingdom perspective. We need to be able to grasp what the kingdom of God is capable of doing in a world that's so desperately in need of the hope that the gospel brings. Yet, sadly, we tend to have more of a global awareness. We know what's going on, but do we look at it through the eyes of Jesus? Do we look at it through the the passage of Isaiah 42? The promise, the promise of a a king that would come who would be a servant and would see the blind healed, would see the captives released, and we'd see liberation come to those who are oppressed. Is that what we see? Is that what we look for in our king, from our perspective? And I want to say to you, I think there is one particular thing that stops us doing that. And that's why I entitled this sermon, Awake is the New Sleep. Awake is the New Sleep is not a term that I've brought up. Many of you know any cons- uh, modern music. It's, uh, it's the album by a guy named Ben Lee. To tell you the truth, I don't know exactly why I call it that. The the words uh, in in many of the songs don't sort of point to it, but I decided to borrow it. I hope he doesn't mind. Um, (laughs) Just to basically, because I think it captures the problem that for many of us in the church, and for myself in particular, is that we're awake to everything that's going on, yet somehow we know that we're asleep. We know that even though we hear of the things that are going on around the world, Something doesn't fire in us that says, well, what is my responsibility in that? Something doesn't fire in us that says, God, that is not the design that you created for this world. So in a sense, I'm awake to the things that are going on, but I'm somehow asleep in my reaction to it. And I want to say to you that I think that the problem that we face is the problem of indifference. And it's we live in a world of indifference. Indifference is a very helpful... Tool that we have in our life, sadly. But what it also means is no difference. To be indifferent to the problems of our world is to make no difference to the problems of our world. To be indifferent is to essentially have no response to the world around us, to all that's going on. Eli Wiesel is a a particular writer that I have enjoyed reading, he's not a Christian writer. He very, very much a, has very strong opinions about God. He was a Jew that survived the Holocaust, came through that experience and had some major misgivings and crises in his faith. But I tell you, he writes some very powerful words about where the church stands today and the challenges that are before us. This is something that he says. I'm not sure if you'll be able to see that on the screen, so let me read it to you. Indifference is not a response. It's not a beginning. It's an end. It always is the friend of the aggressor and never the victim whose pain is magnified when they hear or she feels that she's forgotten. The hungry children, the poor, not to respond to their plight, not to relieve their solitude by offering a spark of hope. We deny their humanity and we betray our own. (sighs) Strong words and he writes a lot heavier than that. Because he's someone who experienced being forgotten. He's someone who stood in concentration camps where he thought America and these other powers and England will not stand for this and they will come. And years passed and they didn't. Eventually they did, but by then he had lost all faith in humanity and in his God. Indifference has an extraordinary, powerful effect on those who feel forgotten. I have spent a great deal of time in Asia and, and some time in Africa and sadly, when you walk amongst the poor, their first question to you is, have you forgotten us? Would you stand by and allow this to happen if it was your own family? Would you stand by and allow this to happen if it was your own neighbours? Where are you? Where is our help? Challenging, incredibly challenging to walk and anyone who's travelled overseas has some form of experience of that. But let me tell you, let's, let's just back off a minute and not. I don't want to go down some kind of negative route. I'm not trying to uh, kind of bash us over the head. Rather, I don't also want to mix my words before you when I talk about the problem that I think we face. Because indifference helps us. When I sit and I read reports from our Democratic uh, Republic of Congo's office and they tell me that 45,000 people are dying a month, 1,500 people are dying a day from the same conflict that tore apart Rwanda and Burundi is still going on. I don't know what to do with that. I don't know how to go home to my family and walk in the door and say, Hi, honey, how was your day? I don't know how my day was. I don't know how I'm supposed to sit here and eat this beautiful food that I have and watch the television and sit in the air-conditioned comfort. I don't know how I'm supposed to do that when I have those kinds of things bouncing around in my head. I don't know what I'm supposed to do when I come home from Africa and I've held children in my arms who are dying of malaria, of which the money that I have in my bank account at home could make the difference to get them life-saving drugs. I don't know what to do with that. I share that with you openly. Indifference often is the only thing that, that, that helps me to be able to sit and enjoy a nice latte with my friends down the local cafe. Indifference is sometimes the only thing that helps me to be able to drive around in my car and have a second car sitting at home for when my wife has to drop my kids to their afternoon sport. It somehow keeps me sane. From all that I know, indifference ultimately becomes that buffer that creates that comfort zone for me to live the life that I live. And I want to say to you that that's the wrong conflict. It's the wrong conflict to be having because you know what? Where in my thinking is God? As I've shared it with you openly and as vulnerably as I can, where is my thinking of God in that? Can you hear it? Nowhere. Where is my response that says in my faith, it is not my task, but it is the task of the great living God who created this world and who has promised and said he will bring liberation to those who are oppressed. Why do I not turn to God and say, God, how may I be a part of your kingdom? How may I be a part of your solution for this world? Instead, I cave into myself and feel guilty for all that I have and all that they don't have. Let me suggest to you there is a greater response that I want to bring to you this morning. In Luke 4, it picks up the very essence of these words in Isaiah 42 and more famously in Isaiah 61, where Jesus talks about the fact that the Spirit of the Lord is upon him to preach good news to the poor. It was a very powerful moment in Jesus' ministry when he declared his intentions, reading from Isaiah 61 was an extraordinary moment or a moment that caused a lot of trouble because here he said that this this prophecy is fulfilled before you today i am the promised one that has come to you and what does he say the spirit of the lord is upon me to preach the good news to the poor what does it mean to preach the good news well in fact what he meant there was not about oration it's not about the fact he was declaring, okay, I'm an evangelist, itinerant evangelist. I'm begin, about to begin to travel around and tell people about Jesus. No, in fact, what he was saying there is the Spirit of the Lord is upon me and I will be, I will be the good news to the poor. Not just I'll speak it. That's only part of what I will be. I will be the good news to the poor. Everything about my existence, everything about my ministry is going to be a good news to those who have nothing, to those that are destitute, to those who are despairing, to those who have no hope, I will be good news to them. And folks, we know that we have been given the honour and the privilege to carry on that ministry. The story in Acts is about wait until the Holy Spirit comes upon you. Why? So you can be witnesses You can testify through your lives the evidence that God has risen, that Jesus has risen. We will be the good news to the poor. There's a lot lot in that to take in. There's a lot in that to think through in terms of how do we be the good news to the poor. And I want to take just one, one specific, but I believe essential approach to thinking about how we be good news to the poor. And that's to talk about love. Because God himself said, I am love. And when he said that, what he meant was, it's not, oh, you know, I love things. He said, I am love. The best way to, I guess, to kind of um, explain that is to explain the young boy who's walking through the forest with his father, and it's not as though when he, his father cuts down a tree, he goes, oh, look, Dad, trees have wood in them. Trees are wood. God is love. It's not that that love is elicited in him when when we're nice to him. He is love. And so when we think about the idea of love, what's the first thing that comes to your mind? I did my little survey when I I was preparing this and the first thing that comes to to many people's mind is this image. It's the... Valentine's Day, that's lovely. Some hearts and roses and, you know, nice movies and love songs and, you know, I just you're everything in my world and you complete me. You know, that, that's our notion of love. That's, that's what we so often most familiarly come to when we get asked, what is love? And I want to suggest to you that the strongest image of love is not the heart but it's in fact the cross. (laughs) I thought there might be one in here. (laughs) That was kind of poor planning. I should have looked for that. (laughs) But it's the cross. The most powerful image that could come before us when we think of the word love is the cross. Perhaps the most powerful image that could come to us is some of those images out of the passion of the Christ, of Jesus torn apart beaten and battered, hanging on a cross saying, my father's will be done. Did God step back from trouble and say, no, you know, they're going to have to wear this? No, he said, I will give up my son, one and only son that they may know, that they may know how much I love them. That should be the image that comes into our mind. I want to share with you a story of an extraordinary man, a man named Maximilian Colby. Some of you may know about Maximilian Colby. He was an extraordinary man. He was a Franciscan monk in uh, World War II under Nazi concentration camps. But before he went there, he ran this monastery that was the most extraordinary monastery that took into all people, not just Jews, all kinds of people from Eastern Europe into a refuge that he had created and he was also not only a, a great humanitarian, he was an extraordinary journalist. And one of the things that he wrote that got him into trouble was this particular article. And a piece of the article said, The real conflict is inner conflict. Beyond armies and occupation in the catacombs of concentration camps, there are two irre- irreconcilable differences, uh, enemies in the depth of every soul, good and evil, sin and love. And what use are victories on the battlefield if we ourselves are defeated in our innermost personal selves? That's the depth of this man, to write stuff like that. Well, this particular article, which he was asked by the Gestapo to write, got him in trouble and f- eventually found himself in Auschwitz, uh, in a concentration camp. And in this particular concentration camp, he, uh, there was a rule, if somebody tried to escape then that person and 10 other people were killed from, his, from that person's bunker. So it was a fairly strong encouragement not to try and escape. And one particular night in 1941, the sirens ran out and the, shots, the, hear, the, the hearing shots fired. People were woken very early in the morning. And once these sirens sounded, they knew what had to happen. Everyone had to cr- rush out into the assembly area and stand in lines in their bunkers uh, and uh, the Gestapo would come out, and the commander of this particular concentration camp came out and stood on a box and said, I wish to tell you this morning that a particular man has tried to escape, he's been shot and killed, and because of his actions, ten more of you will die tonight. I want to pick up the story for a moment. of course, um, Maximian Colby was one of those people standing in line. But I want to pick up the story for a moment from a guy named Francis... Um, Francesco Grayanauc is a Jew standing in line as well. And he says that you cannot imagine the stress, you cannot imagine the suffering and the and the torture of standing there listening to names being read out. One name, three names, five names, nine names, the tenth name, Alexander Grainauci. He said, most Jews went to their death with great dignity. He said, not I. He said, I fell to my knees and I cried and I begged on behalf of my family and I begged on behalf of God. I begged on behalf of the German army. I begged on behalf of everybody to spare my life. He was dragged to the front in front of this commander. He said, he's just his hands, he remembers he's just his grip and his fingernails digging into his palms. He could breathe. He was just, his heart was pounding in his chest as he stood before this commander begging for his life. And a couple of miracles happened. The first miracle was a prisoner broke from ranks. To do that, you would be instantly shot. He wasn't. He walked up to a guard and he said, "I I wish to address the commander. The guard miraculously said, sure. So this man walks down to the front and stands before this commander, and he says, My name is Maximilian Colby. I am old. I am alone. This is a young man with a young family. I wish to give my life for him. There was silence, and Alexander Grandelchik remembers being on his knees on the ground, and he looks up past this man standing next to him and sees the commander look down at him and says, Ten names are ten names. And, he's, and Alexander gralin is muscled back to his line. And Maximilian Colby was taken off to a bunker, a starvation bunker, where he took quite some time to die. He was known as the saint of Auschwitz, not because of the fact he gave his life for another, but because he spent those last two weeks caring for those who had also been placed with him in that starvation bunker. He was the last to die. He was actually given a lethal injection. No monument, nothing that signified what this man had done. Except we stand here today and we know that a story like that just rings so true of the faith in which we follow. Alexander Grey Graonaucik says later in his life through his book, to have somebody die for you makes you consider every moment of your life as and you want to live it as seriously as you possibly can you come to the end of your life and all you wonder is was my life worthy of another to have given theirs for mine he calls it a curse for us, we know that we were died for in the very same way. Not that it be a curse, but that it in fact be a blessing, that it in fact be freedom. If you've got your Bibles with you, open to Philippians 2 with me. Philippians 2, there is a particular verse, a bunch of verses that explains this better than I could ever. If you have any encouragement from being, this is from verse 1, Philippians 2. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with his spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition and vain conceit, but in humility, Consider others better than yourself. Each of you should look into your, not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. Now listen to this. Who, being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with, with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. The central verse for me in that passage is in verse six, who being the very nature of God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. The Greek translation for that is the word hapagmon. Hapagmon means... That in a sense I have a right to something, but I choose to give it up. Jesus had a right; he was the living God. He had a right not to go to that cross, but in obedience to the Father, he says, "I will, and I will die, and I'll take all of the trouble upon myself for those I love." Friends, we face, the, we have the same choice. My response to those who are dying in the Congo, my response to those who are dying in our own um, backyard from all kinds of preventable ills and social situations is not to feel guilty, but is to say, to look at my life and to have the same attitude of Christ and say, what is it that I have every right to have, but I choose to give up in love? I choose to give up not as sacrifice, but as sacrifice, freedom because God is my provider he is my Lord and I want to be a part of all that he is doing in this world you have a right to go down the local street and have a latte at, at, at a cafe you have a right to go on a nice holiday you have a right to drive nice cars you work hard for those things you earn your money the Bible says that you know, those, a man whose wages are you know, his worth We have a right to those things. Yet in Philippians 2, it says, when talking about love, even though I have a right to them, I choose to give them up. I'm not going to prescribe to you what that should be, but I ask that you consider before God as you think about your life and as a church, when you consider all that you have, what is it that we can release? We have a right to it. It's not a sin to have it. But I release it. To have the same attitude of Christ who gave up his entire life. Absolute obedience can come from such an experience. But what also comes with absolute obedience is a will to obedience. The photo of this particular man is a gentleman by the name of Archbishop Romero, he was the Archbishop of El Salvador. There was a moment which I would challenge for you today, for those of you who know Christ, that if God has spoken to you this morning, that your prayer be as simple as his prayer. And his prayer was this. I can't. You must. I'm yours. Show me the way. Central prayer in Archbishop Romero's life where he decided to follow Christ and not the politics of the church he was serving. I can't. You must. You must. I'm yours, show me the way. God, you know, God will respond to the most simplest of prayers, the childlike faith that says, God, I can't, but you must. The benefits of it, when you become alive to mission, the mission of the kingdom of God at work in our world, I believe is this, Isaiah 58. Extraordinary passages about worship, Starting from verse 6. Is this not the kind of fasting I have chosen to loose the chains of injustice, to untie untie the cords of the yoke and to set the oppressed free, to break every yoke? Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter? When you see the naked to clothe him, and to not turn away from your own flesh and blood. Then your light will break forth like a dawn and your healing will quickly appear. Your righteousness will go before you and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Then you will call and the Lord will answer. You will cry for help and he will say, Here am I. If we want to draw near to god if we want the experience of this church to be one where we're so close to god that we can hear his heartbeat where we can't control all that's happening because of the power of the gospel then we are to befriend those who have little we are to stand for those who have nothing we're to fight for those who are oppressed we are to seek healing for those who are broken. We are to seek light for those who have no hope. We are to seek restoration for those who live in despair. That is the heart of our servant King. That's what he gave his life for, and that's what he charged us with. And that's an extraordinary privilege. It's a frightening one, but it's an extraordinary, extraordinary privilege. Let me close with this final thought. What do you see? When you look at those pictures, what goes off in your mind? What do you see? Some have said to me suffering. Some of me have said sadness. Some have said guilt. Some have said a mother and a child. I want to suggest to you that what you should see is God himself because he says, when you clothed the poor, you clothed me. When you fed, when you saw in prison those who were broken, when you cared for those who were lost, you cared for me. Our God is not a God that says, go and look after the poor. Our God is a God who says, where you find the poor, you find me. Where you find the broken, you find me. What we should see is the creation of God and a brother and a sister, a child of God, the family that we belong to. If it was our own sister and our nephew, in such a situation I suggest that we would be broken hearted and I would suggest that we should be. But not to fall into guilt and not to fall into despair but to fall upon God and say God I cannot, I can't but you can allow me to be one piece in the puzzle and for this church to stand before God and say allow us to be one piece in the puzzle of how the kingdom of God will forcefully advance and forceful men will lay hold of it. Let's pray. Father, we come before you and we are broken by the knowledge of what's happening in our world. And I would suggest, Father, that many of us are frightened of it. I pray, Lord, that you would both... (laughs) meet us in our brokenness and in our sadness and in our guilt, but, Lord, that you'd also meet our hearts and meet our our minds and meet our wills to make a difference in the world in which we live, that you would open our eyes to the poverty that surrounds our world that we are free from in many regards, that you would open our eyes to the potential that we have because you went before us and you continue to do so. We are your workmanship and we're created in you to do good works which you have prepared in advance for us to do. Lord, may you lift our eyes. May we become the rising light, the dawn in our community in the world. That that be our act of worship. That that be our definition that we are the people of God. That we make a stand for our faith. And we take up the work that was given by Jesus Christ. That we do not consider equality with God something to be grasped. But that we lay up our lives, all of our lives, to the glory of the kingdom of God on this earth. In Jesus' name, Amen. Thank you for allowing me to share with you. Obviously I welcome those of you who may want to chat further with me. It's been an honour, thank you.